This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And because it's Monday, it's Mayor's Monday on Talk the Talk. We will be joined in a, well, later on in the hour, uh, we're going to have a discussion on Russia and Ukraine uh, with Michael Clare, of course, who is an expert on uh, security issues and war. First, because it's Mayor's Monday, let's start with our Mayor of the Week, Mayor Roxanne Wiedergartner of Greenfield. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate your time every month, and I would like to begin today by asking you about uh, immigration and Greenfield and uh, keeping uh, people safe and housed, and there's an issue regarding, something of an issue regarding the use of Days in in Greenfield, so perhaps you can bring our listeners up to date on that, please. Sure. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you uh, on this seemingly somewhat manic Monday, for me anyway. And, um, yes, I can, I can address that. Um, it did come as a little bit of a surprise to us about a month or so ago, I guess, by now, beginning of the month, that, um, and I had received a call from a Lieutenant Governor Driscoll personally to let me know, and then to let me know that within four hours of that call, we would be receiving several families who are who are immigrants uh, here, uh, some of them arriving uh, in America for the first time and others who have been in Massachusetts for a while. As you know, we have very much a housing crisis in Massachusetts, and that housing crisis affects people all up and down the uh, demographic and income spectrum. Uh, there's just not enough housing. So uh, we are a right-to-shelter state. And that means that when families arrive here, we are obligated as a state to um, find housing for them. And um, the southern, some of the southern states and a couple from the Midwest have been sending to various other states like ours who do accept responsibility for housing the individuals that are in their state, um, regardless. And... We here in Massachusetts have been doing this program for some time, as I understand it, from the state. That said, they've been here. Uh, There are 48 families here, I believe, approximately three people per family. Um, And uh, it's been actually um, a little bit on the rocky side to get them all settled in. Uh, we do have uh, the state has now signed a contract with ServiceNet, so they will be the main providers out there. The city's been helping in a variety of ways, but um, you know, we—it's not our responsibility; it's the state's responsibility um, on an ongoing basis, and uh, and the uh, and ServiceNet. We have a a good working relationship with everyone involved. So from that standpoint, we are making sure that the building is safe and that the people are kept safe. And to the extent we can, we are attempting to make life better for them and also to, you know, respect their privacy and their dignity. And um, I've been out there on several occasions and 
not had an opportunity to talk to too many of them in my native, mostly my native language. I do speak Spanish, and so do many of them. But um, but it's been uh, it's been enjoyable to meet them and and see them together all as families. So, Mayor Wiedegarten, so, let, let me ask you this: uh, You said it's been something of a rocky ride. I, I would like to know a bit more about what the difficulties have been and whether the uh, there are issues with regarding with regard to providing social services or getting kids in schools. What what have the issues been, if any? Well, quite frankly, um, the Executive Office of Housing and Livable Communities, as it's called now, formerly DHCD, Department of Community and Economic Development, I think, or something like that, Department of Housing <laughs> and Community Development. Um, has been uh, a little slow to get it up and running. Uh, I think this is probably, you know, this. they've been working on this for a while, so it should have been and could have been smoother. But the contract with ServiceNet, who is the main provider, did not occur till probably at least two and a half to three weeks afterwards. ServiceNet's risen to the occasion beautifully, but they are having to staff up for it. Right now they're using staff that, you know, they use elsewhere and and having them do double duty. But they are they are doing well in terms of making sure that they get the that each family is assessed and they get the social services that they need. Um, what we have been doing on our side, of course, as I indicated, is is answering of course ambulance calls and and the like, um, and attempting to assist at the city level as much as possible while also it's the health department primarily who's taking over that role and the building inspections department. Just one quick question for, for our listeners who don't know where the, the uh, uh, housing is located. Ex- explain that, if you would, please, Mayor. Sorry, you're right. Days in Motel. Um, out at um, basically what we call the Rotary, the crossroads of Route 2 and I-91, Route 2 West and I-91, north and south. Um, And it is a small hotel. It's been there for a number of years. Probably, I forget exactly. um, And was basically vacant and, and available? No, no, no! It wasn't vacant at all. No, but but, no, the, but they, the but the state nonetheless uh, uh, contracted for these rooms for these families. Is that right? That was part of the issue. Some of the um, the families were arriving more quickly than they could reschedule their rooms to other locations. So that was what was a little chaotic in the beginning. Um, again, that's between the days in and, and the state. And um, but in the meantime. I think things have settled down quite a bit uh, in terms of, you know, making sure that the families are there and have adequate room, rooms. And and let's we, let's hope that the families uh, make this transition to their new life successfully. And uh, we are a welcoming community. And thank you, Greenfield. Thank you for the state for doing that. I want to move to, uh, well, I'm looking at Friday's paper right now. And the headline is City Council Approves French King Highway rezoning is a big deal in Ash in uh, Greenfield. I almost said Ashfield. Uh, how Ashfield centric am I, right? <laughs> in May, the Economic Development Committee and the Planning Board, with which you're quite familiar as former chair, I believe, 
um, had a joint meeting, and the discussion was originally a proposal by you, Mayor Roxanne Wiedergartner, um, suggesting a zoning change for almost 50 acres, um, and the city council moved. So can you tell us about what this is all about and uh, how you feel about the proposal that was approved by the council on Wednesday? Well, what it's all about is creating economic opportunity in Greenfield. And I proposed this zone change back in August. And yes, it was about 47 acres. And what is the Uh, zone change? What's changing from what to what? Oh, okay. So it's an area of the French King uh, Highway here in Greenfield, um, just across the road from the planned industrial park. So we are reasoning. And that's that's up where the stop and shop is for people who don't know. Just beyond the stop and shop as you're headed to the intersection of French King and Route 2 East. And across the way is the Greenfield Industrial Park, which has basically run out of land to, that is developable. Uh, we have uh, Certainly we have one very strong business out. We've got more than one, but a business that needs to expand and has um, has expanded there, but is looking for other expansion. So, so l- there, l- let me interrupt, Mayor, just to, so I understand. The zoning change would make these 50 acres zoning zoned for what? Industry, planned industry. For industry, okay. It went from, uh, um, I'm sorry, ooh, uh, commercial industrial to planned industry. In planned industry, it is industry only. Um, and not uh, you're not available to do retail or other things. If you have a, and, and what? So, but, but but why does this matter? What, what does it mean for Greenfield? Well, what it does for Greenfield is open up opportunities for more uh, manufacturers to uh, come to Greenfield and to ex- and for those that are here to expand. There is a dearth. Of available industrial land all up and all over Western Massachusetts. I speak to business owners and contractors and developers who are looking for space for their clients and can't find it. This was a beautiful opportunity um, to make more land available and to bring more jobs, especially good-paying jobs, in the advanced manufacturing and precision manufacturing. Uh, businesses, which we have many of here in Greenfield, several. Um, so that's that's what it's all about. Uh, the city council wasn't happy with the full 47 acres. They wanted it smaller to make sure that we do still have some land out there that is uh, commercially av- available for, uh, you know, more retail businesses or an expansion, say, of stop and shop and so forth. So... Um, Myself and the planning board went back to work. We brought this forward a second time. And for reasons that actually, quite frankly, didn't make a lot of sense, it was turned down by the council Council at that time. Um, there was a, two or three counselors that thought this was an ideal spot for housing, which, of course, we need too. But it is not. It is, um, it is too far from the center of town. You know, it's not on a main transportation route. And frankly, there's no one right now wanting to develop housing. But there are people who want to expand their manufacturing operations and relocate um, other manufacturing locations in western Massachusetts. So now 
I need to get busy <laughs> and start uh, letting them know that Greenfield, at least for their businesses, is open for business. One thing I'm confused about, Mayor, doesn't Stop and Shop have a leasehold right to some of that land? They do, and that is definitely a problem uh, in the sense that um, they have a leasehold for many years now, have had one, and it's good for another 13 years. Uh, it is primarily has been primarily done to prevent any retail from going in out there. Now, with this new zoning, um, and that's a way to protect themselves, basically. Um, it's, I don't know that they have plans to expand over there. If they had, they would have done that by now um, when they could. Now they can't. You can no longer do retail out there, uh, but you can do manufacturing. So... Uh, there are ways if people are willing to, and I don't mean the city, I mean uh, a person who wants to, hold on a second, I need to move from where I'm sitting and uh, and move into a, another room. But, um, I'll continue talking. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, no, that's, uh, so, that's, that's uh, the glory of remote uh, radio. It's, uh, <laughs> we always hear dogs barking and babies screaming. So, Mayor, I have a, a couple of quick questions for you because we uh, really want to spend a little time today trying to figure out and understand what's been happening in Russia. And we're going to have Michael Clare on in just a few minutes. Oh, and but wonderful. I, I, uh, I would like to ask you a couple things uh, more. Uh, one is front page of the recorder today, two big articles, uh, one one by Nan Parati about the Green River Festival. Uh, yeah. Three days in what is three days of Green River Festival? Enormously successful, and thankfully the weather cooperated somewhat. Uh, what is what does this mean economically and otherwise for Greenfield? It means an enormous amount. Our um, you know our hotels, our campgrounds um, are uh, are filled to the max. People spend money not just at the Green River Festival. But also here in town, um, it's it's it is you know a definite economic driver, um, as are many of the things that are held up at the fairgrounds. And uh, the fairgrounds under Mike Nelson has made sure that they are ready to accept a lot of different activities. The Green River Festival, as you know, is this is its 36th year. It's always been in Greenfield. And um, the city welcomes it uh, with open arms. We always assist Jim and his wonderful crew in making sure it's a success. I'm going to take a little bit of the credit because I am the mayor for the weather holding off yesterday. Yes, thank you. Well done. Very well planned and really excellent execution. And and I did a really good job of it. I did it twice and I just made sure that is not going to happen. Well, done. okay. Fine, finally, uh, there was a big deal made for uh, of the opening of the skate park. Uh, oh, yes. Talk to us about that. Well, that is so exciting. I campaigned the last time on making sure that that got done, and it did, and it was so well received. And quite frankly, there were a lot of people there from Holyoke and West Springfield and Springfield who say they come to the skate park. It's been open quietly for a couple of three weeks now. We had the grand opening last week. And um, these are skaters of all ages 
the older skaters can drive themselves. So they were, they say it's the best in Western Massachusetts, and I got to believe them. It is. It's actually quite beautiful. It's over on Chapman Street, and it's huge. I remember before 2000, I remember conversations about the need for a skate park in, in Greenfield for for Greenfield Absolutely. youth. So this is the fruition of a very long series of it efforts. Is. And I was fortunate enough. They needed about $200,000 to meet the obligation of the over $400,000 grant that they received uh, from the state. And um, because I had uh, ARPA money, I was able to make make good on my promise to uh, get that skate park built. Uh, skate park built, and um, and so we did. And if you don't skate, come by and watch all the people. My skating days are over, but uh, <laughs> it's still a pleasure to talk with Mayor Roxanne Riedergartner, Greenfield's mayor, on Mayor's Monday uh, on Talk to Talk. Thank you so much for once again joining us, and we'll talk to you next month. I'm looking forward to it. Have a good week, Mayor. You too. Bye-bye. We will be right back. Was forming. Like a scene from a costume ball. Decked out in the colors of Europe And on fire with the hope of it all More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside. Get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry. Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads. For the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
WHMP. We are so pleased that Michael Clare is joining us again today. Michael Clare is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. He is the Nation Magazine's defense correspondent. He has been with us regularly since sometime before Russia invaded Ukraine, and I'm really pleased to have him with us today. Michael Clare, what happened in Russia over this past weekend? Sort this out for us, if you would, please. Oh, that would take a while, but uh, basically a, a, a formation within the Russian military, a mercenary formation within the military called the Wagner Group, uh, headed by a guy named Prigozhin, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Now, this is a group that's largely operated in Africa, but was called back to Russia to help in the war in Ukraine and played a big role in the conquest of Bakhmut, the city in, in uh, eastern Ukraine, the only victory that the Russians have had. And uh, we, so far as we know, uh, Prigozhin was an ally of Putin, but he has been very, very critical of the Russian military leadership, calling them cowards and incompetence in recent months. Uh, for their failure to failures in Ukraine, and it looked like the Russian military was going to leadership was going to crack down on his group and sort of absorb it into the Russian military and deprive him of his independence. And it looked like he was going to stage a rebellion in consequence. And so his troops, instead of fighting. Uh, eastward towards Ukraine, turn towards Moscow. Could you stop there for yes. one second, Michael? Yes. Because what I don't understand is that Prigozhin was taking on the Russian military. At the same time, he was not really being critical of Putin. So he drew a division there, but then Putin turned around and accused him of treason. And then a lot of other things happened. So is this a was this a rebellion against Putin, or is this just a rebellion against the Russian military for allegedly being incompetent? Well, see, you can't you can't just say that the top Russian military leadership is incompetent and corrupt without implicating Putin. So he never mentioned Putin by name, but these were Putin's guys. You know, they were people that Putin put in place and Putin preserved in power, even though they had lost, uh, you know, the opening battles in Ukraine a year ago in February when they come. These are the guys who staged the original invasion of Ukraine and were utter failures, but Putin kept them in power. So when he says, when uh, uh, when when Prigozhin said that, that the top military leadership was corrupt and incompetent, He's really implicating Putin, even though he didn't name, uh, name him specifically. So on, on Saturday, uh, Prigozhin moved on Moscow. Uh, and I think what he was expecting, anticipating, was that other forces within the Russian military would join him uh, and that, uh, uh, that there would be a popular uprising. And in my mind, this reminds me a little bit about January 6th in the United States. I, I, I think there was some belief among the right, you know, right wing uh, uh, Trump's 
forces uh, th that there would be kind of a right wing uprising against the, the democratic leadership. Well, that didn't materialize uh, over the weekend. Uh, the, even though the, some people clapped for Prigozhin and the Wagner group, there was not, the, the military did not join him. And so as he was got that, was that, Let me interrupt. Was that a serious miscalculation on Prigozhin's part, thinking that the rest of the Russian or significant parts of the Russian military was going to join him? Because otherwise, his troops, his tanks on this on this highway to Moscow could have been wiped out by the Russian Air Force in a minute. Well, I I, I think this was a serious miscalculation, Bill. I think you're right about that. Um, I, I, I think he probably miscalculated the degree to which there was a popular uh, support for a a right wing opposition to Putin. Don't people shouldn't think this was pro peace people that this was a left uh, attack on Putin. This was a right wing attack on Putin for not being aggressive enough in Ukraine. Prigozhin and thought that there was more support for a for for a stronger drive in Ukraine. Um, uh, so he miscalculated the degree to which there was that kind of support that the people wanted to overthrow Putin and replace him with a more militaristic, aggressive, imperialist leadership in Moscow. Michael Clare, I've long been wondering what this Wagner group is all about. We've heard about it uh, for years before the Ukraine. Um, and I've always been wondering about this mercenary group. And, and I can't help but hearken back to Blackwater, these mercenaries um, that the U.S. sent over to uh, Afghanistan and and uh, Iraq. Can you? What is the Wagner Group, and how has it coexisted with the Russian military? Well, you put your finger on it exactly. So this is just like Blackwater. Uh, both the U.S. and Russia uh, want to engage in dirty operations, covert military operations in places like Africa and the Middle East, but where they can't, they, they for political reasons, they can't send troops in, in their own uniform, uh, places where the U.S. doesn't want necessarily want to send their own troops in with, with American flags because of uh, political reasons back home where Congress wouldn't want to uh, pay for, uh, you know, be seen as supporting American deployments throughout Africa. So the same thing, the Wagner Group is sent in for to do Moscow's bidding in, in places throughout Africa. There's a difference, though, between the Wagner Group and Blackwater uh, to the, it, it, because Wagner is also an economic operation. It is deeply involved in extracting minerals from throughout Africa. Wherever they go, they get control over mines as part of the price. Because a lot of these places, the Central African Republic, where they operate, uh, has no money to pay them, but they have rich mineral resources, gold, copper, and that's what they get paid is is uh, they're given control over mining. So the Wagner Group is a mercenary plus a uh, extractive industries operation. Very sad. Michael Clare, we just have a minute or two left. 
What happens next in your judgment with regard to uh, Prigozhin and his uh, exile of sorts from Russia? And will Putin try to assassinate him? And, well, your prognostications, please. <laughs> well, I, I, I can't imagine that Prigozhin's life is, is uh, worth much anymore because I, I suspect that Putin uh, will have his guys track him down wherever he goes and put an end to him. That would be just a guess. Who knows? But I think the real question is what happens to Putin next? Right because this exposed deep flaws in uh, Russian leadership. By the way, so far as I could tell, Putin has not been seen uh, for the past few days. He, he did do a video uh, appearance on Saturday denouncing Prigozhin, but he hasn't been seen anywhere, nor have his top lieutenants or the top Russian leadership. So for, uh, for Russians, for the Russian public, this looks like, uh, you know, that the, the top leadership is fracturing or is dissolving or they're, they're unsure. So uh, clearly there's, uh, it it's appears that Putin's hold on power has been shaken more than at any time uh, since he's been in power. So how that plays out is what we're going to really want to watch over the coming days. Which we will do as we discuss this further with you. Michael Clare. Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies, Nation Magazine, Defense Correspondent. We really appreciate all the time you spend with us, and we'll be with you more in the coming days. And we really appreciate you, your insights, and your time, and the time that you spend with us. Sure thing. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The town of Amherst is pursuing legislation again this session in the form of two home rule petitions to allow changes to the way they run elections. The town reintroduced legislation to allow for ranked choice voting in local elections. The home rule petition is currently before the Committee on Election Laws. Reb Mindy Dom is supporting the bill. And hopefully it will be a favorable decision. And then we can pick up the bill in the next destination on its journey and keep pushing for it to come to the floor this session. The other home rule petition up for consideration in Amherst is a bit trickier. It's the decision whether to allow non-U.S. citizens to vote in local elections. Dom says she also supports this bill. I think it's an important signal and expression of support for our immigrant neighbors that we see them as equals in our community. Other towns such as Northampton and Wendell have recently considered similar home rule petitions to expand voting rights as well. Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling for a national investment in housing and an increase in the number of Supreme Court justices. The senator took part in a town hall meeting at Holyoke Community College to discuss current issues and answer questions. Warren says it's the greatest honor of her life to be the representative of the people of Massachusetts. Holyoke police are investigating after a stolen car was pulled out of the Connecticut River. The Holyoke Fire Department responded to the report of the car in the river at the end of Appleton Street around 3 p.m. Sunday afternoon and pulled the car out. No injuries were reported.
For today, it'll be mostly cloudy, warm, and humid with showers and thunderstorms. Highs 80 to 84. Tonight, mostly cloudy and muggy. Showers and thunderstorms. Overnight lows 66 to 70. And the other for Tuesday, partly sunny, scattered showers and thunderstorms. Highs in the upper 70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Ansiosos por acusar al presidente Joe Biden, los republicanos de la Cámara de Representantes de Extrema Derecha forzaron una votación el jueves que envió el asunto a los comités del Congreso en una clara demostración del desafío que enfrenta el presidente Kevin McCarthy para controlar el partido mayoritario. La capacidad de un solo legislador en la Cámara de 435 miembros para impulsar una resolución de juicio político esta semana tomó a los republicanos con la guardia baja y muchos de ellos lo vieron como una distracción de otras prioridades. La medida acusa a Biden de crímenes y delitos menores por su manejo de la frontera de Estados Unidos con México. La representante Lauren Bobert, respaldada por aliados, pudo usar las reglas de la Cámara para forzar una votación anticipada sobre un asunto constitucional tan grave. La votación de 219 a 208 en la línea del partido envió su resolución a los comités para su posible consideración como cualquier otro proyecto de ley. No tienen ninguna obligación de hacer nada. Los conservadores dijeron que más votos de este tipo están por venir. En otras informaciones, hace un año el sábado, la Corte Suprema de los Estados Unidos rescindió un derecho al aborto de cinco décadas de antigüedad, lo que provocó un cambio radical en los debates sobre política, valores, libertad y justicia. 25 millones de mujeres en edad fértil ahora viven en estados donde la ley hace que el aborto sea más difícil de lo que era antes del fallo. Las decisiones sobre la ley están en gran medida en manos de los legisladores y tribunales estatales. La mayoría de los estados liderados por republicanos han restringido el aborto. 14 prohíben el aborto en la mayoría de los casos en cualquier momento del embarazo. 20 estados de tendencia demócrata han protegido el acceso al aborto. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And this is our Black in the Valley segment with UMass professor Amakar Chabaz, who is a professor at the African American Studies Department. He's waving at me. I'm either, I'm either um, blowing the introduction or he's waving to say hello. One of the two things is happening. <laughs> <laughs> professor Chabaz, thank you so much for being with us. I'm so pleased you could be with us today. And I want to get your perspective on this. The United States Supreme Court is about to make a really significant decision with regard to affirmative action in private and public universities. It, the case or the cases raise the possibility that the Supreme Court will prevent all race-based considerations for admissions to colleges or universities. What I would like to know from you, what I would like you to share with our listeners is what does the University of Massachusetts do with regard to trying to increase and secure diversity in its student population, and what do you think this case will mean for UMass? Professor. Thank you. Thank you. So glad to be here. Black in the Valley uh, continues, and it will continue um, thanks to, uh, despite this uh, impending SCOTUS decision, we will be here. 
let me say that the UMass position, as I see from uh, Ed Blagowski um, speaking to the press, uh, falls on the back on the position of what UMass has been doing now for at least 10 years, and that is what's called a holistic uh, admissions review process. And uh, by this, what is meant is that uh, many factors, it's holistic in that the admissions officers try to look at the whole student, look at a variety of factors in terms of their, their academic record, in terms of their background, personal background. Uh, it looks at, of which race is only one of a, of a list of factors and that nothing, uh, no particular weight is given toward the racial background of an applicant over these other factors. It is not determinative. And therefore, uh, the view is, is that the issues at hand in the University of North Carolina uh, Chapel Hill case and the Harvard University case simply does not obtain here. Uh, there is not a record of discrimination against Asian Americans, as is alleged in the uh, case against Harvard. There is not a, um, uh, um, a, a situation where race is, uh, is at all determinative. It's a holistic review process. But what the Supreme Court is, may focus on, and what we know Justice Clarence Thomas is very concerned about, uh, is the inclusion of race as one of the criterion, uh, one of the criteria for determining admissions, because Thomas says admissions to colleges and universities should be race blind. Race should play no part in that admissions process. And at UMass Amherst, I think it does play some part. Yes? Yes, it does. And <clears throat> we um, do want a diverse student body. We do want a student body that um, is not all uh, of one uh, perspective or all of one um, particular region of the country. You know, over 70 percent, um, uh, well over three quarters of our student body is from Massachusetts. We are, for that reason, the flagship university of the state. But we, we attempt to uh, admit students from out of state. We attempt to, we admit a large number of students from other countries, um, particularly even at the undergraduate level. We, um, we do these things in order to create a, uh, as, as the word goes, a diverse campus. Now, um, the, so yes, race is in there, but it is not uh, determinative. Um, you know, many of the students we have are, uh, as a result of our, of, um, uh, in terms of uh, African-American men, are actually as a result of our um, scholarship programs, athletics, um, and other kinds of, uh, of, of scholarships going directly recruiting them. Really, you know, race, their race is incidental. It's what they, it's believed what they can bring to our campus in terms of <clears throat> their performance in whatever, um, whatever sport it is that, that they have distinguished their, themselves in or, um, or, or academic field. It, it, so it's really, um, uh, even their race is incidental, but that actually is, accounts for a good bit of, uh, of, our, uh, of some of our diversity. One question, one argument that's been going 
on and swirling about this uh, Supreme Court decision or decisions that will come down very, very soon is whether or not there are other criteria that can be considered that would lead to diversity and whether the Supreme Court would declare them unconstitutional. So, for example, could you have a, instead of a, uh, cons- instead of having considerations of race, could you have considerations of uh, economic status? Because that would lead to diversity, both uh, directly and indirectly. And there are many people who are afraid the Supreme Court's going to say, no, you can't even do that because it's just a subterfuge for actually trying to create racial diversity. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are with, in that regard. Well, <clears throat> what, you, what you point out is uh, what everyone is saying is very important, and that is the devil is in the details. It's in the actual statement of the various opinions, particularly of the majority, that uh, <clears throat> are going to be uh, looked at. And uh, <clears throat> for state universities like UMass, we're going to be relying, uh, people are going to look at uh, what the state attorney general says, or they're going to look at what other um, kinds of uh, uh, advisors to to the uh, commission of higher ed and and to state universities really say, and there and 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 the different state systems own attorneys what they're really going to say about what some of those detailed statements really mean in terms of what can and cannot be done, what should or shouldn't be done. Um, so if something like a really uh, uh, bold assertion, take race out altogether. Don't even uh, uh, take account. Don't ask it people who uh, apply to even fill out their, uh, uh, don't ask any questions about their racial identity. Remove all all that. Don't, don't, now, don't include a picture, a photograph. Don't include anything that would, would, would identify you. So, you know, that would... Um, that would be pretty sweeping because then we won't even have the ability to account for what are the demographics of our campus. So that if, if, if something sweeping like that comes about, that's going to really tie, tie your hands from anything that is uh, race conscious, um, uh, any form of race conscious diversity. And let's be clear, that is the only thing that is attacked here. Gender conscious diversity, um, Diversity of other forms is not attacked. Economic diversity isn't even attacked. And so what many uh, are commenting on this is, well, now is the time we can really go into doing diversity by economic status, um, economic adversity, and, and, and we really should take the opportunity to pivot away from, from, from race consciousness. And so that is, uh, uh, you know, so it'll be by things like zip code and looking at high schools that are in certain zip codes where you therefore know that the student body is uh, largely uh, of a high school where 90% may be all on free and reduced lunch, which then has to do with their relationship to the poverty rate. So, uh, and then you might also happen to know that um, at least at the last time numbers were kept at the high school level, that the majority of that school might be black and brown, might be African-American and Afro-Latinx students. But, uh, and so if you recruit from there uh, and, and, and give consideration of the economic adversity that, that, that students from that school likely face, then you are therefore um, uh, also incidentally likely to get 
um, African-American, Afro-Latinx students. So these are the kind, whether you would say it's a subterfuge, Thomas might call it a subterfuge or not, the reality is it wouldn't be based on being race conscious. It would be based upon looking at things like the economics of those of the high schools that you're recruiting from. This is Dan. I have just a comment and then a quick question. I mean, I also want to know if the Supreme Court will make a decision on uh, those legacy admissions, right, whose parents have donated to the universities. And then when they apply to that university, they uh, likely have a leg up in the admissions process. You know, I, I wonder, because it's not a pure meritocracy there where you just have one score and then they let you in because you no, have that the, one the, score. It's affirmative action for rich white rich, people. Rich white people who've donated and then their children get in if they don't just exactly have the right grades. So they also have to make that determination, in my view. But I wanted to actually ask the professor about the state of you mass and diversity today. Can you just quickly summarize that for us? Well, and that's really when we talk about the devil in the details, the, the question of what kind of uh, language might then go toward a more broader and more sweeping interpretation on the part of our administrators. Would um, certain statements cause folks being risk averse to lawsuits mean that you start scrapping your offices of, of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or, or at least dropping the diversity part of it. Um, do you begin to uh, demote, um, uh, the, for example, we have a vice chancellor for, um, D, for diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, Nefertiti Walker. Do you begin to demote that person out of the cabinet to more of a, to, to a lower role? What are the kinds of, um, you know, how does this decision play into that calculus. Also, um, even moving beyond student admissions, how does it play in relation to faculty mm. recruitment, staff recruitment, trying to uh, um, uh, assure diversity in the professorate and in other kinds of roles on the campus, even the, the, ca the cabinet, the administration itself. Mm. I was in the cabinet, in the, um, the chancellor's cabinet for three and a half years. Um, and it was an extraordinarily diverse cabinet. Um, we had uh, 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 many different people in there. Is, that, is it going to have effects on those kinds of decisions? So it's really uh, uh, even more broad uh, a, a concern uh, as to how it can affect the diversity effort at UMass than just the question of student admissions. Professor, we're going to take a break, but before we do, I'm just looking at the, I just wanted to partly answer Dan's question. The black or African-American student population at UMass is 5.4%, Hispanic or Latino is 9.6%, and Asian is 13.1%. Um, I find that very interesting. We're going to take a break. We're going to be right back. I've been sold all my lies. I've got nothing left to play. I've got nothing left to say. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white I'm in love. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Professor Amilcar Shabazz from the Africana Studies Department in the W.E. Du Bois, e. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies at UMass Amherst. We've been talking about the upcoming Supreme Court decision regarding affirmative action. And during the break, we were talking about what has occurred with regard to the black population with regard uh, black popula population of students at UMass Amherst over the past decade and what is increasingly the lack of diversity in many ways at UMass Amherst. And I'm wondering if you could give us your perspective on that, Professor. So first, it's important to note the figures you gave of 5% or so for African-Americans. Um, for this state, then, it means we're underrepresented in the percentage of students at, um, at, at, at UMass. We should be closer to 10%. If we were, if we sort of mirrored the uh, uh, our percentage in the in the state population, um, also the, um, the the story of African Americans on this campus is an interesting one. Um, UMass was uh, first admitted an African American student going back to the late 1890s. I think 1898 it admitted George Bridgeforth 
who went on to graduate in 1901. He was a, uh, a, a letterman. He was, was in football and um, when it was very even more dangerous to concussions than now. He was on the uh, debate team. He was uh, just a, a all around stellar student and went on to do great things in terms of as a, um, working at Tuskegee Institute with uh, George Washington Carver and, and Booker T. Washington. So that's, that's UMass journey in admitting black students. But from there, in that very beginning at the, around the turn of the century, it's the numbers of admissions was only one a year, two, uh, some years none, uh, back another year, one or two, just handfuls, all the way up until the 1960s. In fact, um, students noted in the 60s when they got here that um, students from outside of the United States who were of African descent were more populous than um, uh, American-born uh, people of African descent uh, at, at UMass. But it began to change with programs like the SEBS program, um, started by people like William Darity Sr. and Randolph Bromery, um, some of the great African-American faculty members of the campus. And it did move... Uh, and Bromery, who was a chancellor. Who became chancellor as well, first African-American chancellor. Um, and so it, it really um, took a dip. Um, over the last uh, uh, many years uh, as the various decisions such as Hopwood decision in 1996, another Supreme Court decision that took a stab at, at affirmative action. So affirmative action isn't dying to, by the decision this week. It's been dying uh, uh, for since, since the Hopwood decision of 96 for sure. Mm. We're going to leave it there. We're going to continue this conversation with Professor Shabazz. In coming weeks, we really appreciate your time and insights, Professor. Thanks so very much for being with us and for hosting Black in the Valley. Thank you. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to to apply. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we are both really pleased to have as a guest today um, Kim John Payne, who is uh, an award winning author of eight books, which he's either authored or co-authored on what he calls simplicity parenting one of those books won the national parenting association um best book award he has uh he, he's been he's won numerous awards for his 
theories. He's a director of the Center for Social Sustainability, which has trained literally thousands of teachers and parents and students literally around the globe to, in providing social and emotional and behavioral support to children who struggle in the school environment and in their social environment. And welcome to the show, Kim. It's so nice to talk with you again, Buzz. Yes, you've been on the show, uh, our afternoon show, a few times, and it's always, uh, I walk away feeling like I've just been uh, in a classroom um, because you yourself are not just a consultant and a trainer, but you are an educator. So what we, where I wanted to start is uh, it's summertime. It's the end of June, and students are out of school, and they suffered through what we all know was a very difficult uh, learning environment during the pandemic when they were trying to learn uh, virtually uh, uh, without being seated next to other students and without having human contact with their teachers. Um, and now we've gone through a year, a transitional year, and they have summer recess again. So what are some of the issues behaviorally, educationally, socially that kids might be experiencing uh, confronting them this summer? Yeah, you know, this, this summer is, is it's, it's almost a little bit um, uh, ex, sort of, it's a little bit unique in terms of, of what we're experiencing um, as, as parents, because the, every summer rolls around, you know, we know, we know it's coming and so on. But, but this particular summer, I think more than most, I think the issues and the plans that we make to address those issues need to become a, just a little bit more um, conscious, a little bit more maybe, we could say a little bit more intentional. One of the things that that um, is a, I've been told by you know, a ton of parents is, is, is super helpful to do is to have uh, a summer rhythm. You still, it's like things switch, like the, the school rhythms, school schedules, it, it kind of holds things together a little bit. With the pandemic and with all that we've had to face within that, I, um, my concern is that when those schedules this summer are starting to pull back, um, schedules and rhythm keep kids feeling safe. They keep it. They, they keep kids feeling on track. They keep they give them a sense of structure, of calm. It kind of balances the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, like stimulation and calm. When we have rhythm um, and we know what's coming next and it happens, it creates a sense of calm within kids. And so my suggestion has always been. Uh, get a summer rhythm together, put a summer schedule. It's going to be different to the school year, but put it together and it, and and have a, have that kind of structure, not because you just want structure, but because it's what gives kids a balance because without it, you start getting a lot of anxiety reactions. Well, I read your book, Simplicity Parenting, uh, one of your books, and I know that uh, you have grave concerns about what in the vernacular, we call helicopter parenting. That is, you know, uh, parents sort of lording over their kids' lives and structuring their time. Speaking of structure, you know, they have to have violin lessons and they have to get um, uh, go to a summer camp that's going to teach them uh, the, how to use uh, computers or whatever. And, and you focus on kids being kids and having time to invent and play. How does that fit into this summer structure that you're talking about? Yeah, you know, I, in that book, Buzz, um, I talk about, you might remember I talk about the gift of boredom, um, that, that boredom is actually okay for kids. And look, at, look a quick little data point. Um, 
around 2015, I heard a, I heard, I heard figures from the trade department that that just over 70% of all employment, uh, uh, in I did the math on it by 2025. Okay, so around about now-ish, uh, was going to be self-employed, part-time, gig economy, project-based. And anyone listening in today who's ever been self-employed uh, or been in a team with a lot of freedom or, you know, put their put their sort of work life together for themselves know that some of the key things you need is is in, is internal creativity, self-driven motivation, grit, determination, problem solving. Now, those things, all those qualities, they come up when we give our kids the gift of boredom. We give our kids the gift of space to be able to play, to be able to create, to be so that we're not so that there's a balance. It's okay to set up some things that are external, like some camps, some sports activities, and so on. But as a society, we've lurched really far in that direction. And I'm suggesting if we want our kids to be successful, then the outer structure is it's okay to do that but we've got to balance it with with things that kids create for themselves because that's the world they're moving into we can we can count less and less and less on outer structure on the things that buzz you and i could lean into when we were kids and as we were growing up into adults we can lean less and less into that it's more and more self-employment that is going to require a lot of motivation and that's where letting kids be bored letting them come up with their own stuff is super important because it literally myelinates those pathways in the brain it's not nothing it's not soft science it's uh, only um it's it's um very important to give kids that space so uh, kim john Payne, i i would like to ask you to focus for another moment on this question of kids creating their own time and space because the question that Buzz raised was about kids having structures imposed on them. You're going to this baseball league and this is going to happen and that is going to happen as opposed to kids having pickup games and making their own rules and umpiring it themselves and deciding whether it's a ball or a strike or a foul or it's fair or it's all of that. And it seems to me that this desire, particularly for middle class and upper middle class families to have all of this structure actually deprives kids of some really vital experience, which is figuring stuff out themselves. You know, you, you you really nailed it, Bill. The, the, when kids have to have to actually work stuff out, it could be in a pickup game at the park, or it could be building a fort out in the backyard if there's a backyard. You know, if, if you're lucky enough to have that sort of in 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 your kids' lives. But think of all the conversations, the negotiations, the taking into account someone else's call, someone else the way they want to build that fort, the way they want to play that game. All that stuff, Daniel Goldman talked about this in Working with Emotional Intelligence. Daniel Goldman was the author of Emotional Intelligence and then later his follow-up book, Working with Emotional Intelligence. And right at the top of the list of people who did very, very well in the in their work life were people who uh, could uh, seek feedback, accept the feedback, act on the feedback, and then go back and check how they were doing. Now, if you think of all that, that's what we do when we're building a fort. You know, that's what we do. We develop those skills when we're playing a pickup game. And that it's and again, you know, the outer structure of having kids be in those clubs teaches them how to be 
in in groups without a form i get that that's that's like the that's like the sort of pencil line that's the that's the outer shape but inside the line is all the color that's where the color exists that's where the light and shade exists and that is what we can do in the summertime for our kids when we give them when we give them the space to be kids Dan, daniel goldman should point out another western massachusetts star yes <laughs> I, I wanted to, Kim Jean-Payne, you don't just work with kids. You work with educators and parents. You, uh, you've been the director of the Collaborative Counseling Program at Antioch University, New England. Um, and for over three decades, you've been uh, everything from a school counselor to a consultant. I think uh, what I read online is to 230 U.S. independent and public school systems. It's a pretty impressive resume, South Africa, Hungary, Israel. Are you getting resistance with your message from educators who, and parent, parenting experts who have long thought that good parenting means making sure that the kids have structured lives where they're going to be going to computer camp and playing baseball in an organized way? You know, uh, I used to get a lot of that kind of uh, either feedback, uh, that kind of pushback, beg your pardon, or or just ambivalence, actually, um, to that to this kind of message going back about 20 years ago, maybe even 15 years ago. But there's been a growing tide of 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 educators and particularly parents who are who are just got this gut instinct that something is just wrong something we did not have to grow up with this amount of pressure it was just too much too soon too sexy too young just too too much right and it, it's it's like a gut instinct and there's this dance between our cognitive intellectual sort of like well everyone's doing it so it's got to be okay there's that one voice and then there's our gut instinct which is hang on a minute something is out of whack and we need to bring this is it into whack can you be into whack anyway we, um you we've got to bring this back into into shape i'm encountering more and more and more people who are listening to that instinct and are actually starting to act on it so actually buzz it's gone the other way more and more educators are worried about very high stakes uh, testing and the pressure that puts on kids. More educators are worried about the amount of time kids spend on screens. More parents are worried about the pace of life and are trying to you know, dial it back to doing what is essential, not what they actually are told uh, what to do. So I think we've almost got to, I think of it as peak stress, like peak oil. We've got to peak stress. We've got to the top of that, and it was catalyzed by by the health crisis that we had, the health emergency, COVID, and now parents are looking from that height, saying, "Just hang on a minute. We have to get this. Um, we have to get this back into shape." So I think it's gone the other way. That's very comforting to hear. We are talking to Kim John Payne, who is an expert on child development. And when we come back, I'm going to ask him. Uh, a really important question, which he just alluded to, which is kids and their screens, having their nose in a screen of one sort or another for hours and hours every day. We're going to be back with Kim John Payne right after this.
More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. With defamation much in the news, we ask, what exactly is defamation? I'm Bill Newman, and this Civil Liberties Minute is a primer on defamation. The first element of a typical defamation claim, private person versus private person, is that the defendant made a false statement of fact. Second, that false assertion of fact must be communicated or published to other person or persons. Third, the plaintiff, the person claiming to have been defamed, generally must prove that the false statement caused them harm, a lost job, for example, and damage to their reputation in the community where they work or live. A defamatory statement about persons who are not public figures can be made negligently or intentionally. We'll discuss public figures and the First Amendment in another Civil Liberties Minute. A few more facts. Defamation that is written is called libel. Think newspapers, books, or magazines. Defamation that is verbal is called slander. Think radio. Because defamation is a civil action, the standard of proof is a preponderance of the evidence, 50% plus a feather. A plaintiff can win money damages. No one goes to jail. Opinions are not defamatory. They're opinions, unless they embed untrue statements of fact. A defense to defamation is truth. You can say terrible things about another person, and if what you said is true, it's not defamatory. Because in the world of defamation, falsity is the currency of the realm. The Civil Liberties Minute is made possible by the ACLU because understanding the law can matter and freedom can't protect itself. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with award-winning author and consultant and trainer and counselor and educator Kim John Payne. And just before the break, Kim mentioned uh, among the other things that uh, make it a child's development um, creates some barriers for healthy development, uh, being screens. Screens in the broadest sense possible. Screens can be part of a phone or an iPad or a computer or a television. And I don't know the statistics, but um, there's a whole lot of hours that the average kid in the United States in 2023 spends Kim John Payne um, with their nose in a screen, right? Kaiser Family Foundation uh, study in, this was going back to 2011, found the average American child, uh, 12 year old, 12 to 18 year old, consumed seven and a quarter hours of screens a day. And a follow-up study they did um, just a couple of years ago found that that had risen to nine and a quarter hours. And that doesn't take into account multiple screen use, which is happening now. So there's a phone going, there's an iPad going, there's a laptop going. So, um, you know, the, the and it, so, you know, if anyone listening in, if your kid does less, it's pretty weird, like less than nine hours a day, you're doing well, but it's, but really it's, it's got to, it's got to a pretty serious stage. I'm not an anti-screen guy. I taught, I taught information technology. I should point so, out that yeah. Kim John Payne, you're a Western Massachusetts resident. You live in the Hilltowns and I'm looking at you on a screen right now. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah but, um, you know, I taught information technology for years in my high school when I was a school counselor. So I'm not an anti-screen guy. I'm not anti-screen, but what I am is passionately pro-connection. Connection to nature is one connection. Connection to friends, not friending. Uh, connection to family, you know, that's so, so, so crucial and to family values. And connection to you, just yourself, just what you, what your beliefs are, what you want to do. Now, that's always been my worry with screens because they interfere with connection. Even, even just simply the amount of time it takes time to just hang out in nature. It takes time to be with friends. It sure takes time to be with, with family. And so the the my concern is the time connection on one hand. But then it's the, the it's it's the brain development on the other because there's a there's an emerging uh, and very um, I mean the jury is kind of in on this one about what screens are doing to kids' brains so much so that that recently the um, the Surgeon General issued what did he he said something like there is ample I'll read from it his report ample indicators that social media can have a profound risk of harm to mental health and well-being of children and adolescents and he and he went on you know to to issue a, a very significant uh warning you know he said the most common question parents ask me is is social media safe for my kids and this is I'm quoting right from Dr Murphy at the moment and he said, the answer is we don't have enough evidence to say that it's safe. In fact, there's a growing evidence that social media use is associated with harm to young people's mental health. And finally, he talked about risks of, and this is what caught my eyebrows. He talked about um, uh, issues ranging uh, from social media use and, and, and overuse. And that there that has to be defined, of course, but eating disorders, um, uh, stunted sleep patterns, sexual exploitation, self-harm, acute depressive ex, uh, um, episodes, even even uh, emerging evidence linking it to suicide, ADHD. Now, you know, Buzz, what, what I, I was thinking when I read this through, like if we had a, a babysitter spending seven hours, four hours, whatever a day, who was possibly being uh, helping, like responsible for our kids experiencing eating disorders, sleep problems, was exploiting them sexually, you know, causing self-harm and depression. Would we really have that babysitter in our home? Would we hire that person? I think we'd probably report them to the authorities. Is there yet, any is there any evidence of what happens if we actually pull the kids off their screens for a period of time and what what the result would be? Yeah, there's a there's a doctor uh, called Victoria Dunkley, D-U-N-C-K-L-E-Y, a medical doctor who is at sort of the one of the leading uh, voices in this field. She wrote a book called uh, A 28 Day Brain Reset. And and she a very convincing, very, very sort of solid research stands behind it. Um, and she actually uh, reports over and over, and, and I can I, I can also uh, confirm this because many 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 of the families that I speak with I I suggest they go on a brain reset because we because screen I call it screen creep 
because screens have crept more and more and more into our lives and our more and more time is being taken up. We don't have a baseline to judge, like how much is a screen really affecting my child, right? So if we go on a 28 day brain reset, which by the way, it's the perfect time to do that right now because we don't have to deal with screens, homework on screens, schools insisting on screens. This is the perfect time to do it in the summer. What you get is a baseline. And, and I can't tell you how many countless numbers of parents have said to me over the years, I feel like I've got my little, little child back. I feel like I've got my kid back again. We are never going back on screens in the same way that we did. Did Dr. Dunkley actually quantify that in numbers or somehow that we could, uh, what are her findings? She totally did. Um, one of the, um, one of the findings which has been backed up a lot, um, more recently, and a lot of, uh, studies very recently have come out, have been based around dopamine, the neuroreceptor dopamine. Dopamine has often been associated with pleasure and reward. There have been, there are still people who feel that screens uh, uh, are really triggering high levels of dopamine. In other words, it's it's uh, needs to be very pleasurable and then rewarding, pleasurable and rewarding. And uh, video games and social networking and, and screen content in general, much of it is designed to trigger that neuroreceptor. More research recently though, has come out to suggest that it's a little bit, um, it challenges that actually. And it's saying, you know, screens are, uh, and dopamine is associated with desire. So it's a, it's a very primitive primal thing that kids, when, when there's high levels of dopamine and, and it's absolutely, you know, solid, that screens are affecting the neurotransmitter of dopamine. What happens is that when we try to take the, the, the screen, the iPad, the phone out of their hands, they react, and some parents have actually said this, they react like they, they're going through drug withdrawal. Well, the fact is, they are. Is this a phenomenon that is based in significant part on instant gratification? You pick up the screen, you want to know this, you get an immediate answer, you want to see John or Sally and you immediately get them, you want to uh, be involved in X, Y, or Z, and there it is. Is that part of this? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, Bill, the, the dopamine makes you want to, it makes you want things. It's responsible for like motivation. It's it's saying, uh, you know, you should stay close to this thing, to this this app, because there's something here for you. Dopamine um, wants you to have that kind of yes, instant gratification, but it even goes further than that. It basically says, if you leave me, you know, if you leave the the, the source of this dopamine release, the, the screen, then something you're going to miss out on something or something could possibly even harm you. And so when we take the screen out of a kid's hands, they can they can react with real fury. And my suggestion over the summer is is try try the 28 day brain reset of Victoria Dunkley, get your baseline. And because for me, as a you know, as a parent, as a dad myself, the screen decision is one of the biggest decisions we'll ever make for our kids. And what I'm all about is helping parents explore it enough to make informed choices. It's not 
that, you know, like I might have an opinion about it, but that doesn't really matter. What matters is the opinion of a parent and, the, and that the choice they make is informed. And, and I think more and more parents are interested in that. Could you go back to this 28-day brain reset for one second? Are we talking about uh, going cold turkey? Are we talking about setting up a number of hours or limitations on it? What, what, do you, what does it mean? Yeah, what Victoria um, talks about says ideally, if you want to have an, an optimal baseline judgment on, on how much this is affecting your kids, and it is stunning how much it's affecting their behavior um, and, and discipline issues, like guide, trying to guide our kids, like trying to tell a child to clean up their room when they're when they're um, the, the the dopamine is 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 being um, is being um, excreted and so on. It's not pleasurable. It's not rewarding, and you know, it's it's just it's re- it makes everything hard. What she says uh, in her work is ideally, yeah, go screen free. Do a bunch of other things with your kids. Maybe it's camps where there are not screens. Um, a lot of camps now are pushing back a- against screens, having screens in camps, but at home and so on. Then she actually um, in, on her website talks about well if you can't do that just have a family movie night now i've spoken to victoria and my point on that is is i want to take out the family movie night and just put in family night and 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 sometimes it can be puzzles sometimes it can be screens a movie sometimes it can be a game but she actually has uh, come to the point of view of do whatever you can do I think that's the, that's the answer, Bill. But she says you got to get rid of the screen significantly enough for those twenty-eight days to actually see what effect this is having on your kids, and it's startling. It is. It's really sage advice. Uh, any parent uh, who still lives with their kids, whatever their age, should be listening to a twenty-eight day reset. Can't harm anyone. Kim John Payne, I can't tell you how grateful we are to have you and your perspective on Talk the Talk today and hopefully in the future. Thank you so much for joining us and for what you do. Always a pleasure, guys. It's so nice to speak to you all. Thank you. We will be right back with Writer's Block with Megan Zinn. Remembering games and daisy chains and laughs Got to keep the loonies on the path You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The town of Amherst is pursuing legislation again this session in the form of two home rule petitions to allow changes to the way they run elections. The town reintroduced legislation to allow for ranked choice voting in local elections. The Home Rule petition is currently before the Committee on Election Laws. Reb Mindy Dom is supporting the bill. And hopefully it will be a favorable decision. And then we can pick up the bill in the next destination on its journey and keep pushing for it to come to the floor this session. The other Home Rule petition up for consideration in Amherst is a bit trickier. It's the decision whether to allow non-U.S. citizens to vote in local elections. Dom says she also supports this bill. I think it's an important signal and expression of support for our immigrant neighbors that we see them as equals in our community. Other towns such as Northampton and Wendell have recently considered similar home rule petitions to expand voting rights as well.
Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling for a national investment in housing and an increase in the number of Supreme Court justices. The senator took part in a town hall meeting at Holyoke Community College to discuss current issues and answer questions. Warren says it's the greatest honor of her life to be the representative of the people of Massachusetts. Holyoke police are investigating after a stolen car was pulled out of the Connecticut River. The Holyoke Fire Department responded to the report of the car in the river at the end of Appleton Street around 3 p.m. Sunday afternoon and pulled the car out. No injuries were reported. For today, it'll be mostly cloudy, warm, and humid with showers and thunderstorms, highs 80 to 84. Tonight, mostly cloudy and muggy, showers and thunderstorms, overnight lows 66 to 70. And the outlook for Tuesday, partly sunny, scattered showers and thunderstorms, highs in the upper 70s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. Go electric during the 4th of July sales event at Leah Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram. New 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe Hybrid. Lease for only $379 a month and we'll pay you an unheard of amount for your trade. Visit General Manager Nick Kane to save thousands on your new ride and in your gas tank. Now at Leah Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram on King Street in Northampton. Stock number 230202. 24-month lease. 7,500 miles per year. 3899 down plus tax and fees. Must credit qualified for Stellantis Financial and 7523. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. Do you use home oxygen? Do you know about the increased risk of fires and burns? No one should smoke in your home. There's more oxygen in the air, which makes fires burn faster and hotter. Furniture, clothes, bedding, and hair absorb oxygen and can catch fire more easily. Keep 10 feet away from any flame or heat source. For more information, call 1-877-9-NO-FIRE or go to mass.gov DFS. Breathe easy and use your home oxygen safely. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to Talk the Talk. It is that time of the week, which we all always look forward to. It's Writer's Block with uh, Megan Zinn and a very special guest today. But first, I just wanted to announce, for those who aren't aware, today is the United Nations Torture Awareness Day. Um, and there is, the Guantanamo Survivors Fund is going to have a conversation this afternoon at 4 o'clock with three Guantanamo survivors who are going to be talking about, well, being tortured and surviving torture and related matters. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. It will be a fundraiser to raise money for those who have survived torture at Guantanamo and, unfortunately, many other places throughout the world. So um, I hope that people participate. If you go to the Center for Constitutional Rights website, 
Um, just put in Center for Constitutional Rights, and you'll see a link there, and you could participate uh, at 4 o'clock this afternoon to this really important uh, uh, conference um, with these really important speakers. So I hope you do that. Megan Zinn, what do you have for us today? Well, my guest um, is Francie Lynn. Welcome, Francie. Thank you, Megan. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, Francie is a writer and the acting books editor of the Boston Globe. I love the Boston Globe. <laughs> Yay. Um, and her debut novel, The Foreigner, won the Edgar Award for Best First Novel by an American author. And in full disclosure, I have worked for Francie for the Globe, <laughs> briefly. Um, so to start, because uh, I don't think most people really know what an editor does in this context. Um, hold, so hold it, hold it. You have worked for Francie. I have. Yes. I just wrote an article for her as, as in her role as editor and my role as writer. And it was fabulous. Me Megan Zinn, this is your chance. This is your get-even moment. <laughs> this is my get-even moment. What did I write on? I was actually <laughs> writing. I was writing about one of the writers. Um, yes. Um, and in this moment, I'm blanking yes, I'm on the name. I remember who um, It was a wonderful writer. Who, the name of the book was Welcome Me to the Kingdom. Um, oh, yes. It was a, a writer, right. um, an American Thai, Thai yeah. writer. And Naimar Doan. Thank you. <laughs> Got to get the brain in the right place, which was really fun to read the book and interview him as um, a very exciting upcoming writer. Yes, yes. But anyways, back to Francie. Um, so what do, you, what do you do in your role um, as a books editor? What does a books editor do? So the bulk of my job is figuring out what is coming up um, in terms of publishing and trying to figure out which books to review and then matching those books up with a appropriate reviewer. Um, and that um, is actually, it's a super fun job. Um, it is mm -hmm. also sometimes a little stressful because yes. we have a pretty limited you know, number of slots and there's just so many things coming in that I would love to cover them all. Um, and I have so many great reviewers and critics that also have you know, so many great ideas. So it's hard to fit all those in. Um, you know, another thing we do is they have a monthly column. So I try to find a writer for that. Um, lately, I've been trying to get um, writers to write about books that they, some aspect of books that they, um, some aspect of their book that they um, would like to write about that isn't necessarily part of their author patter. Mm -hmm. um, and then periodically we have um, uh, a special issue. So like, for instance, we just did the summer reading issue. Yes. Um, and then, you know, around the holidays, we do like holiday books um, or in best of books. Um, and then we have fall books coming up as well. All right. All right. And you also, um, the, the, the piece that I wrote was part of your regular column, um, which I think is really cool, is the story behind the book where you right. tell a little bit about the story, like how, how, this, how the book came yes. to be, how it came about. And that's, that's really cool. Bill, do you have a question? I would be interested to know because authors tell me often how difficult it is to get a review, even if it's a yes. really good book. And I'm wondering whether or not my impression that there are as more limited space for book reviews today than there were than there was years ago. Is oh, that is that oh, true? Oh, definitely. I mean, the Globe. In its current incarnation, there's three reviews on Sunday. There's nothing during the week. So we have to cram it in. I think previously they did have reviews during the week. Um, you know, some place like the Times has, you know, a very large yeah, Sunday spread. Yeah, they have their, their review books. Um, and they still do things on the weekday. So, you know, there are isolated places. I do feel like there are a few signs of things coming back a little bit, like the Washington Post kind of just brought back their oh, that's wonderful book news. section. Um, I see that book forum. I mean, which was sold fairly recently back in December. But now they've been, you know, or it was it was... It went a little defunct back in December, but they brought it back. Um, and, you know, so I see little signs that things are coming back in print. Um, 
but but yeah, there's definitely limited it's space. It's very limited. And in that regard, if I could follow for just one second, I'd be interested to know more about what you said to Megan just a moment ago, which is about a picking an appropriate reviewer. Mm. Because yes. in the Times, let's pick on the Times. <laughs> um, yes, go ahead. Let's go for it. <laughs> uh, uh, it seems to me often I learn more about the reviewer than I do about the That's book. That's very funny. And, oh, I'm wondering, yes. and I'm wondering if you... Tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, what is the art, Francie? And our well, guest is Francie Lynn, editor, books editor for the Boston Globe. Yes, yeah, so that's interesting because there are different, you know, as I've been in this job, there are different reviewers that have different styles. Um, and so some of them take kind of a personal tack, um, which I sometimes like. Um, and we can talk about the whole enterprise of book reviewing at some point. Um, some people are purely informational um, and they keep themselves out of it completely. Um, and it really depends on the kind of book also. I mean, if it's a fiction book, generally people are talking about the craft of writing. Um, if it's nonfiction, oftentimes with nonfiction, you know, I'm trying to get somebody who knows something about the subject. Mm -hmm. So they're not necessarily, I mean, hopefully they'll be a good writer also, yes. <laughs> but oftentimes they'll just be somebody who has the knowledge. Um, and so the standard is a little bit different for, for them. I mean, I still want to be coherent, but. And are you looking for someone who's going to tell your readers, this is a great book, this is a great read, or are you looking for them to be more neutral about it? Because I want to know, should I go buy this yeah. book or take it out of the library? Well, That's what I really want to know. Imagine. This is Bill Newman pitching for a job. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually a perennial problem for me as a book editor because, um, and it's interesting to hear you say that, because I feel a little existential sometimes about book reviews. Um, because in some ways, the book reading public is relatively small. Um, and I feel like I don't want to, you know, if we're going to devote all this time, the time and space to a book, I don't want to give it a negative view necessarily, yeah. because mm -hmm. what is the point of that? Um, you know, so I do like to give it a positive view. At the same time, I don't want a critic to be like, we can only write positive reviews because, right. you know, yeah. you want to be honest about what you say. So, yeah, I know that some outlets, uh, I think maybe, is it Bust Magazine? Some places have actually just done away with book reviews because, what they want is to kind of build a community of readers. They don't want to be kind of gatekeepers being like, this is mm -hmm, good and this mm -hmm, is bad. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's subjective also. I mean, it's one thing that I like and may not be your yeah. cup of tea at all, even though it's like a good book. I think I, I heard an analogy once where it was, you know, somebody who's like an ice cream tester. And, you know, you could be somebody who, you know, it could be like chocolate from heaven. But if you don't like chocolate, it's you just don't right. like chocolate. Exactly. So, exactly. you know, I think that is the perennial dilemma of a I critic. Think this question is, is for both, uh, Megan, and for Francie, uh, and maybe for Bill as well, which is my wife, she reads the New York Times book review religiously, and she loves to read reviews of books and movies for that matter. And I always ask her, how do you know this person that you don't know, this person's opinion mm -hmm. that you're relying on, right. that we should go see this movie or go read this book, how, do you, how can you have so much confidence in a review? So. Yeah, Megan? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, what, certainly what helps is if you know the writers and you know what they kind of like. And this is really more true maybe with movie um, reviewers, mm -hmm. that if you... Um, don't you know? Take the advice of a movie reviewer who's hated every movie you've loved. Um, <laughs> with the book review, it's a little. It's, I'm sure it's a little harder. Um, but I imagine the way they write the review can do it because if they give a good reason for what what they like and they don't like, that can help you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, no, absolutely. You know, and their background occasion. But I mean, it's hard because I think um, like the Times sometimes uses repeat reviewers. Th this is also funny because thinking about it from a critic's point of view, there are so many freelance book critics yes. out there. And, you know, I feel, it's not that I feel bad for them, but I want to get <laughs> as many of them in mm -hmm. as possible. Um, but that also means that readers don't really get a sense of 
you know, this particular reviewer likes this one thing. I mean, there are some people who I use over and over again um, because, you know, we have a relationship or whatever. But, yeah, no, it's definitely, a, you know, it's definitely it requires some juggling. <laughs> Um, so we've been talking with Francie Lynn, who is the books uh, the acting books editor of the Boston Globe. And I think we're going to take a break and come back more and talk about the art of reviewing and and the influence that um, that book uh, journalism has. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store. Open right now at whmp.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Introducing You Choose Rewards, the free debit card rewards program that rewards you every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. Just use your Greenfield Savings Bank Debit MasterCard to make purchases and you'll earn rewards points every time. You'll even earn You Choose Rewards with your mobile wallet, including Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, or PayPal, when you link your GSB Debit MasterCard. You Choose Rewards can be redeemed for dining, shopping, traveling, cashback, donations, and more. Just go to our website and sign up for you choose rewards for your gsb debit mastercard it's free not a gsb customer yet just stop in any of our offices or open a new gsb checking account online and you'll find out how rewarding banking locally with greenfield savings can be get a 1000 you choose points bonus good for a 10 dollars reward when you sign up during june at greenfield savings bank member fdic member dif greenfieldsavings.com see bank for details You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And, of course, Megan Zinn, it is Writer's Block, and she's talking to uh, Boston Globe Books editor and author herself, uh, Francie Lynn. Um, Francie, do you, um, how much editing do you do of the reviews themselves, and do you kind of have a hand in directing them in any direction? It really depends on the writer. We have some very experienced reviewers who need absolutely nothing. Um, and there are some who, you know, if they tend to be, sometimes they're younger, mm -hmm. sometimes it's somebody haven't really tried out um, who is very smart but doesn't necessarily, you know, write in a kind of newspaper way. A lot of times we get somebody who's academic who tends to, you know, I mean, they have great thoughts, but they need to kind of trim it down a little bit um, for length. Yeah. Um, so, Can I interrupt? Is mm -hmm. there a length? Yes, so most of the book reviews are about 850 to 900 in length, and then some of the interviews... Like Words, that is. 
<laughs> and then uh, what Megan did, that is a shorter one. That's about 300 mm-hmm. to 400 words. Um, and if it's more words than is allocated, you take out a big scissors and go at it? What do you do? <laughs> I try to. You know, I actually have a review that's coming out on Sunday, which is on this great book called National Dish, um, which is about how uh, the various dishes that are associated with different countries kind of came to be. So it's like a cultural history. Oh, I love that. And it's a wonderful book and it's a wonderful review. Um, but she was way over her word count. So, you know, last night I was sort of sitting there and I was like, I'll take out this word. And it was like, you know, death by a thousand oh, cuts, just trying to take out one word at a time. As a writer, I won't go over the word. I, w- I work so hard not to go over the word count because you don't want to make your yeah. editor mad. Well, and you don't want it to, you know, <laughs> s- end up sounding clunky. But in the mm-hmm. end, I kind of let it go over. And I was like, you know what? If the design people want to come after me and ask me, <laughs> I'll do it. But I'm not going to do it preemptively. But this is an interesting thing, print versus digital, because in some ways, we're kind of constrained by, um, you know, like digital, you want like a lot of hits. You want it to be something popular, et cetera. Um, but we're still constrained by word counts for print. So mm-hmm. um, it's this odd kind of middle ground uh, yeah, that you have to yeah, negotiate. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested in um, whether um, this is changing tax a little bit, but what role can a publication like the Boston Globe, what can it and what does it have in helping to counter book bans and attacks mm. on BIPOC writers and LGBTQ writers? Is mm-hmm. that something do you feel um, that you can influence that in some ways? Yeah, so um, my predecessor at the Globe, Kate Tuttle, um, made it. She actually did a whole edit of the of the book review and mm-hmm. pointed out that basically, like everybody was white, the reviewers ah, okay. and like yep. the books. Um, and so she made a really concerted effort to include more uh, diverse writers, and I've really tried to continue that, both reviewers and uh, both authors and reviewers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because oftentimes the reviewers will have a better idea of what's out there than I do, and so they bring mm-hmm. things to my attention that I wouldn't. So there's that aspect of it. Um, yesterday, we actually ran a piece by Mike Curato, who is local. He wrote Flamer, and that's one of the most banned books in America. Uh-huh. And I kind of sought him out because I knew he was local. I knew his book was banned. And I, you know, I wanted to um, kind of hear what he had to say about it. So I devoted the monthly column to his piece, which was beautiful if you yeah, haven't it looked at it. Um, it. You know, it was very moving. Um, and it just gives a different, I mean, it doesn't necessarily say anything that you would not somebody who already is of the opinion and does not already know about, but it was different to hear it from the perspective of, of a writer who, and an author who has been, you know, um, who has a very personal stake in it um, and his connection with his readers. Um, so I am hoping that that got a lot of circulation because, you know, I talked to Mike a little bit about this and he was like, you know, even if you think a certain thing about the subject at large, um, if you were talking about this book and this particular character in the book, how could you not, you know, worry about this child yeah. in the book. Um, and I think that's something that really gets lost. And his whole essay is kind of about that. I think that really gets lost in these sort of larger articles about book banning, um, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, I'm just giving more exposure, um, letting authors have more of a voice in it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And really just, uh, my managing editor is great, actually. She very much holds the line on, you know, sometimes when you're scrambling around, you're like, oh my God, I just need, you know, something, you know, I need like a reviewer who is definitely, you know, on our roster who can get things done and you know she very much holds the line I think you know trying to get people in there who are diverse who are different who don't necessarily who haven't necessarily had a background in you know journalism or whatever but still give them space and brings very new perspective, I would imagine, yes. to the reviews. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, in your job, you've got a, a broader view of publishing than your average bear, your average reader. Um, <laughs> do you – got to get a yogi um, um, reference in there. Do you do you see any distinctive changes or trends in books that are being published and getting wide attention? What kind of movements are you seeing? 
So I definitely think that um, there is more of a push for diverse or more diverse voices mm -hmm. um, in publishing. It's really funny because we just did our summer reading list um, and I had to kind of go back to, so for the summer reading list, I basically get a few reviewers for each category and I have them uh, pitch their selections to me mm -hmm. and then I kind of edit them down and try to make sure it's balanced. Um, and I actually had to go back to a couple of them and ask them, you know, to um, put in some more men <laughs> uh, and things like that. Yeah, so, yeah. And I'm not sure if that's because that is the particular reviewers I asked, but I do feel like there was a trend where more of like, the, when I look through the catalogs, there is a, you know, there's a greater proportion of, um, you know, writers of color, mm -hmm. uh, BIPOC authors, um, you know, LGBTQ authors, um, which is a, you know, a really welcome sign. Yeah, um, but we did good. actually get a complaint about that summer reading list. This guy wrote in and said, you know, I realize that, you know, women and people of color have been neglected in the past, but does that really mean we have to act as if, like, white men have nothing to offer. You only have three white men on your list, which is actually not true. <laughs> um, but it was this interesting response. Um, and then he sort of went on this rant about how this was going to be responsible for the GOP winning in the okay. fall. Um, you know, so that was just a... You know, we kind of just dismissed that but, <laughs> in yes. some ways. But it was just a, I mean, it was, it did actually, I did think about it because I was like, well, I want to make sure that this is like a balanced, I'm not just sort of like flinging things on the page because, you know, these are people of color or whatever. I mean, I think it was a good list and I was very excited by many of the things on there, but it's just interesting to see how it hits other people. <laughs> I'd be interested to know in terms of balance, and this perhaps is less important than what you were just talking about. How do you balance fiction versus nonfiction? Mm. Mm. No, I, that I try to, um, you know, for a while at the beginning, I was really trying to do it, you know, like this week I have three of that and whatever. And now it's just, it's become more natural. Um, and I look at it every once in a while to balance it out. But um, I don't know. It's, it's very organic, actually. I don't mm -hmm. feel like it's actually been a problem. Um, you know, I do try to make sure that uh, there's not too much fiction at once. So you're not trying to do 50-50 or, or, or to ha a better question perhaps, how does it turn out? Is it more fiction than nonfiction or the other way around? I think it's really been pretty equal. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's somewhat by luck because I haven't really been trying to orchestrate that. But I do look at it, you know, like I look over the month or I look over the months ahead and I'm like, oh, okay, well, that is a nonfiction. And I just try to make sure. And if, if it's over, I will, you know, try to put something else in. Um, and so we're talking with Francie Lin, um, the um, editing books editor for the Boston Globe. Um, and in the few minutes we have left, um, tell us um, what are some books that um, you've been most excited about this year, either recent releases or things that are coming up? Oh, Ooh, you're asking for a review. Yeah. Well, well, no, okay. Just don't, you know, you don't, don't be negative. We're asking Just, you to scoop your newspaper. <laughs> scoop your That's newspaper. There we go. <laughs> well, I know there's uh, so many things I could go on and on, but one thing I would like to um, mention that's coming up actually in a couple of weeks, um, because he's a local author, Andrew Leland, who, mm. um, he's coming out with a book called The Country of the Blind, and it's a memoir about, um, I mean, I think he's had uh, some sort of eye disease since he was a teenager, but that, um, it's a memoir about sort of, his sight diminishing and kind of embracing the culture of being blind. Um, I have not read it yet, but it sounds very exciting um, and really touching. So I'm looking forward to that one. Do we have more time? Do, yeah. we, do you rely on reviews to decide what to read? Yeah. Um, y yes, I do, actually. I mean, uh, you know, Kirkus gives reviews. Oh, so, yeah. um, I mean, I get reviews from my reviewers. They'll say, I've read this and it's really great. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's a word of mouth review, but yeah, yeah. it's a review. I imagine a lot of people want to tell you what books they loved and what books mm -hmm. they didn't love. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, we People all over the place. Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, we have in the studio this really handsome young man, Elliot, <laughs> who's wearing a headset right now, and who uh, did you rely on reviews to decide what to read to Elliot and what books he should read? Um, I'm trying to think. Well, you know, the library has always given the best reviews. Yeah, I love the great Forbes, recommendations. The section and Lily. We went there a ton when he was little, and you know, now he's kind of off on his own. But yes, we did rely on reviews. Yeah, and I'm very envious of the head of hair that he has. <laughs> <laughs> And able to pick his own books? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And how old is this young He's man? He's 11. Okay. <laughs> it's just great. Well, listen, thank you so much, Francie Lynn. Thank you, Megan Zinn. Once again, you always bring us the most interesting people. And, uh, thank you. We learned so much. So, And all of you listeners, thank you so much for joining Talk to Talk. Remember, we're all just trying to walk the walk. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, creasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the 3 billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. WHMP North.